I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dave Irwin. Um, Dave Irwin, along with his wife, Lisa, is the owner and manager of Raptor Domain. Dave, welcome. Yeah, good day, folks. How are you going? Very well, mate. Um, it's their first podcast back since Christmas. So, uh, all right, back into it, 2019, and we thought we'd get off to a flying start. Oh, God. <laughs> Unintended. Um, now, Raptor Domain, mate, that's um, on Kangaroo Island here. Yeah, yep, that's, uh, that's our business. We started uh, 11 years ago. So, started off quite small. You remember that because you come over and helped us build the Averys. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, 11 years ago. Jeez, time flies, years. doesn't it? I so. love what you do, mate. I mean, you, you do a lot of education. Yeah. And we'll talk yeah. a bit about that. Yeah. But you do you do rehab a bit, uh, with the birds? Yeah, rehabilitation, try and get what we can back into the wild, of course. But um, mostly uh, we, we focus on education, what, you know, environmental education. Um, that, that's really the key because uh, that's how you're not going to change things if you don't educate people you know they say like knowledge is power and the more you know the, the better you can look after the place and the more you want to look after it you know. and your shows are absolutely compelling i mean people when they they see a, a show an educational show that uses live animals they they want to see the animal exhibit the behavior that it's supposed to like if i'm showing a kid uh, a betong and i say they hop like a kangaroo they're all we want to see it hop you know but yeah. with your shows your birds, they fly. Yeah, we don't we don't get anything to do tricks. It's not like a you know amusement park or anything. The only thing, well, we get the magpie to pick up rubbish and put it in the bin because we say you know if a bloody magpie can do it, we can all do it. You know, pick up your rubbish, just don't leave it on the ground. Even if it's not your rubbish, pick up, put it in the bin. You know, and and so we got the magpie trained to pick up a couple of bits of paper and put it in the bin. We even got a raven that he picks up plastic bottles and all sorts of stuff and he sings as well. Oh, really? He, he doesn't sing very well. He just goes, ah. <laughs> he does it on cue. It's pretty funny. But, um, yeah, so it, mostly our shows are about education, environmental education, as I say. But in, in you've got to entertain people. And so we roll it into one. We call it edutainment. Because, you know, if you want to just get entertained, watch a movie or go to a theatre or something like that. But if you actually want to learn something, that's what we've found with people these days. They, they actually want to learn stuff. And you'll find that, uh, you know, with all due respect to zoos and wildlife parks, people just go there to see strange animals in cages. A lot of them don't. They're not even interpreted properly on the on the cage to so they know what they're looking at. They go, oh, it's a strange animal. Oh, look, here's another one. Oh, look, here's another one. When they when they leave the park at the end of the day, they haven't learned a bloody thing. You know, they've, they've learned nothing. So, but you can't jam environmental education down people's throats. So you've got to be tricky how you do it, and you've got to get them interested. And the way to do that is to entertain them and and educate them at the same time. That's that's our way of doing it, yeah. No, that makes sense to me. I remember studying environmental management back in 2000, and some you, you learn all these things, which are true, and you need to learn them, but you're driving home thinking, I just want to go home and slip my wrists. We've really stuffed everything up. <laughs> and that's not very empowering. A bit like this on the podcast, and we? we always talk about the bad things, and, yeah, you a lot have, of positive there, laugh, but, there, yeah, there, there yeah. is a lot of negatives going on at the yeah, moment. But. Yeah, what we've done to Australia, what Whitefellow's done to Australia since he's got here is appalling, really. You know, the way it was managed prior to us getting here, we were only talking about it earlier, very different to what... Uh, to what it is now and you know the disaster up the darling at the moment is you know that's not a natural disaster that's just the way we're managing the place and doing it really poorly you know do you talk about the, the darling river and the fish situation oh yeah yeah that's absolutely appalling and we'll be drinking that water soon time it gets down here at adelaide you know <laughs> it's the same water that's going to flow into the river so yeah I, I they think that us down the end here we shouldn't have any say well we're drinking it we should be having something to say. Anyway, another subject. No, go for it. I mean, well, I mean, obviously you work with birds of prey and other birds and things, but you uh, expand out into other species and the environment as a whole too, don't you, and what you do? Yeah, yeah, well, like I say, it, it's all about environmental education. Um, you know, like they say, you, 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 won't, uh, you won't love something if you don't know about it, and you won't know about it unless you learn about it. 
and so the, um, um, you have to uh, appreciate wildlife and the way to do that is to start at the grassroots so you know we get the kids out there with, we put a little glove on them and the birds fly to them and you know, we've had little kestrel landing on a one-year-old with a little tiny glove on, and you want to see the look on their face. You know, that, that's the spark. That starts in that, that, that care for the environment's right there. They, those kids, you know, they're looking at a little mopoke sitting on their glove, and they're looking at it in the face, and all of a sudden you see the look on their face. You can see how it changes their attitude. And if you um, uh, present that bird properly and say you know where it comes from what it eats how it catches its prey what you can do to help the species in the wild um, that, that's the information people want you know put up an owl box all these sorts of things we talk about um, wh whatever you can do for you know there's an environmental message with every bird that we display and we display you know up to up to 10 birds in a show goes the show goes for an hour I suppose I should talk about what Raptor domain does really. yeah yeah go on mate yeah uh, yeah, so we do uh, two bird shows a day and a venom show in the morning with venomous creatures, funnel webs, scorpions, taipans, no tiger snakes. No venomous birds, <laughs> no. Um, and, and we talk about other venomous, like venomous mammals. And you think, what, venomous mammals? Well, there is, you know, platypus is a venomous mammal. It's got the spurs on its hind legs. And uh, there's a little, like a sloth, in South America, and they lick their elbows, and if they bite you, uh, they will envenomate you as well. Um, so we talk about venom, and uh, you know the sea creatures. The most venomous in the world is that little, um, little shell. It's got that little spike, and man, that's the most venomous thing in the world. So, so we've got just a shell, of course, not a real one. <laughs> and we say to people, yes, the most venomous thing in the world is in this box. You know, and it's just a little shell. But anyway. Um, so we talk about venom and the venom show, and then at uh, right on lunchtime, at one o'clock, we have a reptile show where you can hold the little crocodile and the goannas and the, and the pythons and that, and wrap a python around your neck, and the kids get to hold little snakes, and you'd be surprised how many want to go home and get a, get themselves a little snake, and that care for animals like that, it uh, um, it goes with them through their whole life, and they they have a a respect for animals, and therefore. A respect for the environment because like we say in our, our, our motto is species minus habitat equals extinction you can't have animals without habitat and you have to have healthy habitat and when we say you know you've got to have habitat that it's suitable habitat um, doesn't mean that someone's gone through with a bulldozer and bulldozed at all it just means there's a cat living in it or there's some reason why that animal can't live in that habitat because there's something there that doesn't suit that might be beautiful forest but it's got no hollow trees and how's anything going to breed if without hollows so so we talk about suitable habitat for that species or for all species you know, they have to coexist and it's a, and that's one of the things i've been getting on my soapbox about is control of feral animals of course but it's not just feral animals control of any animal you let too many animals breed up in an environment where they are impacting on all the other species in that environment, you have to do something about it. I mean, humans have to do something about it. As sad as it is, be they native or not, we are the managers of the planet now, and it is up to us, whether it's in a, a wildlife park or whether it's in a, the park lands or a forest, you can't let one species impact adversely on that environment to the detriment of everything else that lives in that environment and that includes the vegetation if you see what the koalas have done down in the hotways it's like a moonscape we're getting the same problem starting to happen on KI too many koalas what do you do you let them eat themselves to the point where they starve to death like they did in the hotways and ruin the, the whole forest for everything that lives there you can't we're bound to do something about that you know we really have to do something so that's a different uh, different topic but um, it, it's all about environmental education that and that is part of it um, yeah it's a great platform to do it because you've opened people up they've appreciated what they've seen at your show they've, they've had a bit of a laugh they've had a smile they've had an interaction with an animal mm. and that's um i mean you taught me years ago i used to do birds of prey shows with yeah. your birds many years ago and you had a uh, a way of introducing the animal 
talk about where it's from, behaviours of the animal, take cues from the animal, but finally a conservation message about the animal. So that's mm. the best time to do it. It's not just come on, just a random person coming up, here's a conservation message, people's ears shut straight away. Oh, you want me to do things differently? Oh, you want me to put in a native plant? Or what's wrong? I've got blue-tongue lizards and rainbow lorikeets, my garden's okay. Um, but it's it's a complex issue, yeah. but you're, you're starting the conversation and getting the people interested from the get-go, and I think that's fantastic. And I guess because mm. the, con- the control of these animals comes, because I guess in some areas we're actually pinning them into an area so they, they sort of can't get past us where we're living exactly, now yeah. so yeah I guess sadly it does come to having to control some numbers um, yeah I think so mm. it's interesting how you said you know, showing the people the animals and it, it um, makes them compassionate for the animals and learn more want to learn more about it um, so, something you said back there reminded me of the other night we had a moth expert here, and I thought I understood the environment. I thought I'm, yeah, I'm pretty. I've got local native plants here, and I, I see the biodiversity's here, and I realise that's important. Well, they were they were um, light sheeting where you put up a UV light behind a sheet, and they're yep. attracting all yep. sorts of invertebrates from right here. Um, and that was one thing that was interesting. Then I started asking questions like, well, where are all these guys during the day? And you look at all the different camouflage, well, these ones live on trees. Well, these ones live on, you know, bits of grass, they're small yellow species. And um, these ones, oh, these ones go on the ground. Um, oh, this one lived for three years as a boring insect inside an acacia. And then it comes out, and it doesn't eat, it just lives for three days and it spends that whole time trying to trying to mate and then and yeah and I, look I thought I knew all that stuff I'd, I'd heard all that before we all kind of knew that stuff but looking at this these I mean some of these insects have never been described before and some of them are threatened and some of them their species that they need the tree species they need to threaten and you're kind of looking at it right in front of you and it's even like next level again I'm looking around thinking there are boring insects living in some of these trees right now um, that I never even gave a thought to as I was walking past these trees sure it's because yeah. they're boring that's right. That's what it is. <laughs> Sorry, um, but <laughs> but but um, I, tell, I mean I, I told you this story. I told I called you up as soon as this happened, Dave, and you know what I'm going to say. I, we were doing some shows with Animals Anonymous at the uh, convention centre. We did five shows throughout the day, and one of the things I was doing, I was we had an, uh, an hour, and I was saying, you know, on the count of three, what's the word for nighttime animals? One, two, three, and everybody goes nocturnal. You know, no no questions. Okay, no worries. Well, we come out during the day. What's the word for daytime animals? One, two, three. Nothing. And it, was, <laughs> it wasn't until my third show, one little girl right at the front, and she goes, Diana! And none of the teachers or anything, nobody, nobody else said anything. like she was here with us then. Was that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was me. Yes. <laughs> and, I said, and I was so impressed. I, had, I held the mic to her. I said, oh, oh, that's fantastic. How did you know that? And she said, we went to Rutter Domain and I learned that. <laughs> That was brilliant. Yeah. That's good. See, we're getting getting through. We're yeah. getting through, and, yeah. and kids don't forget it. So, um, yeah. So education really is the key in that, and uh, another soapbox to jump on. Rehabilitation, rehabilitation. Well, rehabilitation. In this is purely my opinion, but I hope it makes sense to you. If you rehabilitate an animal. Doesn't matter what species, unless it's a really rare one, then it's as many as you can get back in the wild, the better. And I know every little bit helps. But rehab, really, say, let's let's say a kestrel, Australian kestrel, comes in with a broken wing, pin its wing, whatever, get it flying, but it can't fly well enough to survive in the wild. So, what do you do with the said kestrel? You've got three options. If it can't go back to the wild because it's not flying well enough or it's a juvenile that has no parental tuition that makes it hard for them to um, or, uh, and it's no good to keep as a breeding bird if you want to breed kestrels and you've got a, a partner for it um, and it's no good for education as an education bird then the bird in my view gets euthanised there's no point to keep it alive in a cage just to look at so they're the criteria I use when I get birds in. There are purists that if it can't go back to the wild, shouldn't keep it in captivity, got to euthanise it. And there are those around Adelaide that do exactly that, which is terrible as far as I'm concerned, because education really is the key, and these people don't see it. That little kestrel, say you do fix it up, and you let it go into the wild, really, what 
benefit has that bird got to the whole population of kestrels in the whole of Australia? It's absolutely minuscule. And the amount of effort and work and, and yeah. resources gone no. into rehabbing it. So rehab work is really good for the rehabber. Great for educating kids. You can take it to school and say, look, we'll fix this bird up, and then we're going to let it go, and off it flies, and everybody's happy, and they all get the warm and fuzzies. And that's why rehabbers mostly do it, is for that. I think they want to help the environment, but they they don't sure. really know how. Sure. But well, no, it's on. because they want to help the animal, the individual mm. animal, and that's fine. Mm. But what it does for the population of that species as a whole is, is you know, minuscule. If that bird's used as an education bird to change people's views on the environment or, or even just that particular species and how you can help that species, then you're doing something. That, that bird's worth more to its own species than it would if it was in the wild. If you know what I'm saying? I do. And that That's ties into I what you said about... Because yeah. rehab is a pie in the sky, really. It, it ties into what you said about zoos and sanctuaries. Yeah, they've got these animals in captivity, but if they're not giving conservation yeah. messages and in, in, edu- if they're not educating with those animals, it's really just a circus. Well, It is, yeah. You're, you're basically just pimping the animals, aren't you? Yeah. For your own monetary gain. Yeah, well, that's right. Sure. I've, I've got to make a living. I've got to make money. I've got to pay my staff and everything. But we're... Our... our focus is environmental education using those animals firstly to get the people's attention because when you've got 100 people sitting in your arena you've got 100 pupils in your class basically that's what it is and it's a good analogy very very sneakily you use the edutainment and you edutain them and they walk out with a message you know, and, and right at the end of our show, we say species minus habitat equals extinction, and people start to get it. And it's because they've actually learnt something and the birds haven't been made to do tricks and stuff like that. And, the you know, birds are flying right over their heads or, you know, we get Casper to pop out the hollow when we call him. He's the barn owl. He's just fantastic. And he'll sit on your knee in the front row. And, and people get such a buzz out of it that they actually... You have their attention the whole show, and I've got very good presenters, uh, and they uh, they pander to the crowd, of course, particularly little kids, because we found that if the kids are happy, everybody's happy, yeah. even the people who don't have kids. So it's not a kids' show, though. You know, we, we, with your dialogue, you've got to try and keep it above or around twelve-year-old level. You can't hit them with terms like. You know, if you're talking about an eagle's foot, the, the plantar surface of the metatarsal region, you know, <laughs> <laughs> who knows what you're talking about? It goes over most people's heads. You're talking about the sole of the bird's foot, if, you, if you're talking about that. So, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you've got to keep your dialogue interesting and, and reasonably basic because you've got, you know, you've got all sorts of people there. So you have to keep it mid-level and, and most of all interesting and fun because then you keep their attention for a whole hour. We are always told when we did shows in Darwin and that, 20 minutes, people can't hold their attention more than 20 minutes. I have people leaving my show after an hour and they want more. They don't, they, they don't want the show to finish. So we must be doing it right. You must yeah. be doing something right. And there, definitely, yeah. like, definitely your side of things that you do, your free flight and let people interact with your animals is definitely an excellent way of, of helping the environment. And that I yeah. com- completely agree. But like zoos and that obviously don't do that side so much. You still get the odd flight stuff in zoos, um, but not, not even that so much now. But they obviously do a different side of helping. You know, they put millions and millions back into conservation. A lot goes as well. on behind the scenes. Oh, for sure, yeah. 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 So we're not well, saying that zoos are, are rubbish. <laughs> They're far <laughs> from it. But, yeah, they, they do a different type of educating people. Uh, they probably do less educating people and more field work, I guess, um, if anything. Yeah, there's a lot of behind mm. the scenes yeah, work yeah. like that. Yeah. Mm. I, I, the, with, with enclosures, you know, you've got to have in that uh, environmental enrichment going on for the animal, you finish up with all the stereotypic behaviour, which is really good with mine because all my birds come out every day. Um, they don't, um, they're not just sitting there day after day with a full belly and absolutely nothing to do, which is sadly what happens in zoos and parks. Um, uh, the the interpretation is where I think a lot of parks and zoos fall down. Um, although they're trying to pick it up, but you you can put the best signs in the world at the front of an aviary or a, an enclosure of some sort, and people will still just look at the animal and go, oh, yeah, and just walk on to the next one. They won't even read 
I won't even read it. But it's even worse when they want to read it and there's nothing to read. Mm. That you know, there's the name of the bird and this is where it comes from and that's all there is to it. You know, like, what yeah, what is the point? point. Really? That, that's, what a, is the point? that's a human lack on it really, because even when we do animals anonymous shows you'll have like you put all your cards out front of each animal explaining to them what the animal is where it comes from da 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 and then nine out of ten people will go what's that what's that yeah read the card people still ask crying out loud like it's yeah. the same with zoos like they, they probably can't win that one because but you do see a lot of parents read. that the kids will say mum what's that mm. and the mum can look really impressive and go oh that's a yeah. an eastern water <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> so we had good. it one day when that kid was telling his mum what the animals were without reading the cards. That's right. And his mum said, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to lean over and go, yeah, it is. Yeah. He's right. Yeah, he'd, he'd <laughs> so seen us two weeks another before. one of those, yeah. yeah, you know, thumbs up moments. When, <laughs> yeah, it's good. Mm. Yeah, it's good when it works. Mm. Um, it's funny, you, t- you talk about uh, animal carers. And it's, look, I love, we've had animal carers on the show. There's some fantastic ones. The best ones, I think, are the ones that understand the value of education. Yeah. Um, and it is sad that there are these ones that they see businesses like Raptor Domain or Animals Anonymous or some of the zoos or whatever saying they're making money from wildlife, that's bad. We, out of our own pocket, care for wildlife and that's good. And it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of frustrating argument. I mean, in one level that's kind of true, but it's not to say that we're bad. I mean, we... It costs money to go around and do what we do or to, to, to facilitate all these animals, to care for them, to give the animals enrichment, to give them the right food, to look after your staff, um, to create all this interpretive information. It all costs money. Running a business costs money. Um, yeah, we've monetized education. That's great. You know, they should be on board with us. And, and the good carers, in my opinion, good carers, are on board with what we what we all do and we all work together. Mm. Yeah, I agree. They... they do everything out of their pockets which is great some of them awesome um, but the more money we can all make to plough back into wildlife the better you know it is something that you want to make as much profit out of as you can so that you can put it back within reasons like, yeah, <laughs> it, is, yeah. it, it is within reason Steve that, that's why when we do we have eagle holds at the end of the show we've got mm. a couple of eagles that are very chilled and they'll sit on anyone's glove which is hard to find a good eagle that will and uh, we only charge 10 bucks, and that goes back into our rehab yeah. projects, you know, pays for all the vet bills and stuff like that. And a lot of vets do stuff for free, but how often do do the vets get any... They say, oh, thanks very much for doing the job, but how often do they get donations from these wildlife people that they're doing all this stuff for free, you know? Yeah, yeah that, their time it, sort yeah, of can the, be free, but they've still used that stuff. do stuff for free are so valuable, mm. you know, I... I uh, uh, I think they've just given up their time like they do, and it's all the time. Mm-hmm. There's so many animals coming in yeah. that need veterinary attention that it's it's a it's a native animal. It's mm. injured. Who's going to pay for it? You know. So some vets do charge, but um, a lot do it for nothing, and, and they should be applauded for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What you do is a way to give back to to uh, the vets and I don't think people realise how much work's involved I mean a lot of people say you've got the best job in the world and that's because they haven't yeah, done it <laughs> everyone wants to thinks it's going to be awesome but it's a lot of work it's relentless it well, is yeah. well, both of your businesses would be absolute crap wouldn't they if you didn't actually charge people for what you're doing yeah They'd yeah. Well, that's pretty rubbish oh they? yeah yeah. <laughs> and, and here's and a we, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, I'd, it's all we've got <laughs> yeah. we try to keep the price down as much as we can yeah uh, it's only uh, $20 for a, a bird show and mm. less for a, the other shows um yeah, and like for holding an eagle's ten bucks. You go to Desert Park in Alice Springs. You can stand next to an eagle in a tree for forty bucks or something. Mm. You know, and they're out and make money. But ours is not just the money, of course. That's important, but it's the experience. We're trying to give people that experience so they go away with a, a little better understanding of, you know, an appreciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that's great. important. Mm. And that's, um, is that some sort of bird? I'm not too sure. No. We'll David would know. <laughs> Speaking about birds, we've, we're at uh, Animals Anonymous headquarters here. I've been here for just over two years. And there was a bird that appeared that I'd never seen before. I had no idea what it was. It was a raptor. So oh, yeah. I sent the photo to Dave and he said... Oh, is that? Yeah, he, he messaged that you are the luckiest man in, in Australia right now having that. And you go, it was a square-tailed kite. I'd never heard of that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's awesome quite, looking bird. Quite a rare bird, particularly for this area. Square tails, yeah. Um, they, they look similar to the black kites that you see thousands of when you go to Darwin or anywhere like that. But uh, uh, they're uh, quite a rare species, especially with how we've fragmented forests now. Um, these birds prey upon the chicks of other birds. So they just cruise around over the forest and, well, they'll, they'll have a go at most things, but uh, you know, a nestling uh, is just plucked out of a nest. And it could be anything from something like a little honey eater right through to a, you know, perhaps a, a, a crow chick or something like that. Well, this one was eating a red wattle bird. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking about birds. Wow. There okay, Rocky, wrap it up. Rocky. A noisy eclectus parrot. Is <laughs> <laughs> someone turning up? Oh, I, I don't know. He's, he's it's kind of our alarm. He lets us know when people are here, but sometimes he just screams at the rock wallabies. Just because. <laughs> um, I don't want to harp on about animal carers, but uh, we did early in the piece when we first started 12 years ago, we did get criticism from a from an animal. Well, now there's a green tree frog going wow. for it. It's all happening. Uh, we did get criticism from animal care. And look, I think they do an amazing job. Their heart's in the right place. I'm not criticising animal care. No, that's right. But, um, but they're arseholes. But they're <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this lady had 20,000 kangaroos, I may be exaggerating, um, on, a, on, a, on a couple of acres without a blade of grass. And, you know, what's your environmental legacy? Yeah, caring for animals. That's, a, that's an important message which you and I both talk about, uh, all of us here are passionate about. But, I mean, if she, let's say she didn't have any of those kangaroos and she just put back plants and nesting boxes, she could create an ecosystem that would not only get visited by kangaroos, but from the soil microorganisms up through the yep. invertebrates to the forest birds to all the things that we're losing. Um, so it's... A, yeah, it's a, it's a mm. difficult well, one. I was just looking out of Bruce's window this morning and he's got his bird bath and his little seed tray there and puts out his seed every day for the birds and the lake keeps it full. And, you know, I said how once upon a time I was thinking of how I'd like an aviary built onto my kitchen so I could just look out the window straight into a, a big aviary. And well, this is what Bruce has got. It's way better than an aviary. You never know what's <laughs> going to come into the water bowl. Um, you know, he's got your regulars to the seed tray, but any other scraps and stuff, he puts that out for the, for the other birds, even the, the crows that you can hear that raven now. Um, they all come, and they're right outside his window. I mean, why do you want an aviary, really? That's know? right. I say that to the kids. Who would like some, when we do an animal show, who would like some of these animals at home? And they all want some of these animals at home. Well, <laughs> plant some plants yeah. and some, put some rocks and some logs and you will find all sorts of things will come to your place. And, yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll all move in. Yeah. Yeah. You won't yeah. have to feed it, you won't have to clean yeah. its poo, you won't have yeah. to heat it with electricity. So where, you, where you're talking about is the Adelaide Hills, obviously, but yeah. you come yeah. from one of the most stunning areas of Australia, not just South Australia, Kangaroo Island. Mm. must be pretty awesome. Oh, in there. Well, someone said to me one day, you'll live in someone's holiday. Absolutely, <laughs> it's yeah. a bit like that. Um, yeah, if you want to go fishing and it's a bit windy, just go the other side of the island, mm. you know, when, yeah. in the lee of the wind. Um, and you can always catch a fish. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the whole environment there is fantastic. Um, and, uh, as I say, I've been there 11 years and I need a big crowbar to pry me out of there. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, it was a great place to, to do the, the type of business I've got because... It is a tourist destination, and people get there and they're looking for something to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm quite shocked by how many tourists m that Kangaroo Island must get to, to have yourselves and other places there for yeah, them to visit. Yeah. Well, it's dear to get over on the boat, mm. um, but most Kangaroo Islanders are happy with that because um, it basically keeps all the no opals on the big island. <laughs> um, you looked at me. And <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure I was going to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, um, uh, there's 4,000 people live on the island. But that live there? Yeah. Yeah, wow, I but, didn't know that. Well, huh. it's, you know, it's, people don't realise how big it is. It's uh, it's 150k long and 50k wide. Mm. Um, but if we had, you know, if it was subsidised and everyone could get over to the island you know, basically for free, it just wouldn't be the same. No. It just would not be the same. Um, the uh, the beaches, like I can go down to Vivon Bay Beach 
and I might be the only person on the beach going Beautiful for a walk. Place. You know, it's one of the, I think it's the fourth best beach in the world. Yeah, well, I think it was second when I first yeah. moved over 10 yeah. years ago. And you could be like the that. only person walking along it. Amazing place. And you see the schools of salmon come in on the beach. Mm. And then um, uh, you've got Flinders Chase and Remarkable Rocks and Admiral's Arch down there. And they were seeing and, and Seal Bay, of course, the big, big draw cards for there. Um, but uh, and the same thing, I can go to the jetty at night, and you're the only person on the jetty fishing. Mm. You know, it's like the you're most not shoulder squid. to shoulder, like the, the most squid I've ever caught was Kangaroo Island. In, yeah. in one night, it was ridiculous, and there was other people around them, like they were taking the squid. We were, yeah, it was just amazing, mm. great fishing. Yeah, it is. But um, uh, sadly, the the seal numbers have increased, and I know once upon a time there were thousands of seals there, but there were also no fishermen in those days as well um, and I'm talking commercial fishermen because yep. the tuna boats are all out around KI now um, uh, chasing the, the tuna they net them mm. and then tow them all the way back in the nets back to Port Lincoln, Lincoln yeah. um, so they're out there chasing the tuna at the moment you can see their lights out and they, they've come right round to the south coast of the KI now they used to be able to get them straight off of Lincoln but they've changed their habit a bit and uh, of course now uh, Nopsim has uh, okayed the seismic blasting in the Great Australian Bight and uh, that's the worst thing ever. The seismic blasting apart from the drilling for oil, uh, the seismic blasting it kills the little, I forget the name of it, the little baby crayfish. Oh not it, it, uh, Zwankton yeah, something like that. that. It's some little baby crayfish anyway that there's a name from but uh, it kills them, just rolls them over. Um, they reckon that it's so loud, I think it's like 250 decibels, just blasting, and it's every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day. And all those animals, like particularly your sea mammals, dolphins, whales, and whatever, they're working on sonar. And this blasting just drives them mad. That's they had that, that beaching of the all the um, uh, sperm whales there at Tumby Bay. Eight sperm whales up on the beach. They're just... They just lose it from this blasting. You can't get away from it. And we had a fisherman come from Norway to tell us how bad this is, the Equinox, the mob that want to do the drilling out there. And they... Um, and he was saying that for six years they lost their fishing industry because the blasting, where they were looking for oil, drove the fish away. And one bloke was catching fish and they said, how come you're catching them and no one else catching them? And then he finally... Uh, give up the the trick well to the place that he was finding them apparently where they were fishing was like a plateau where they catch all their cod but all these fish had ducked down below the plateau oh. out of the sound waves oh. from the blasting and this bloke knew where they were and he was catching plenty and they're, they're, and they're going oh you blokes just don't know where to fish there's plenty of fish still <laughs> they were all, all the fish were hiding but it took six years for them to come back after they finished doing the seismic blasting and that's why the tuna fishermen now they've said no blasting while they're out trying to catch tuna because they know that's going to hunt them away but they don't care about the the environment for all the whales you know we've got some of the the, the most amazing creatures living out there in the great australian bite uh, and then of course that's just the seismic blasting to contend with what if they do find oil and they it's not going to be one oil rig because all the mobs will get involved all oil companies will be out there there could be one day 50 rigs and there's never going to be a an oil spill and they've done the modeling if there's an oil spill because they're drilling in the deepest waters in the world in the roughest water in the world middle of winter you've got 20 meter seas out there these um rigs are supposed to be held in place by satellites so if anything goes down, the rig floats away. They're two and a half kilometres to the sea floor, and then there's another K under that before they get to the oil. So it's pretty deep, and they're not going to have a spill. Maybe not this year, maybe not in 20 years. But you know, lower averages, the more oil rigs you have, the more chance you're going to get a spill. That spill will cover the full South Australian uh, coastline. All of Victoria, Tasmania and the currents even will take it to New Zealand. And if they can't cap a well that's two and a half, well, the, the, what's the horizon, the one in Mexico? That was only 800 metres. This is two and a half k's deep. How are you going to get anything down there to... I don't know what they're going to do. They, they said it would take something like 
six weeks to get a capping station from Singapore around there. So if they have a, an oil leak of some sort, and they say it's pretty shallowy, uh, shaley, if, if it leaks, that oil's just, they're never gonna stop it. And for what? Well, it'd be all right if, if Australia made a heap of money out of it, but this is all international oil companies. Basically, South Australia has nothing to gain from this and everything to lose, and I can't believe it's, they're letting it happen. It's the, the government taking the low-hanging fruit, you know, taking the easy money. It's, it's appalling, actually, appalling that they'd even do that. They know that the wildlife out in the Great Australian Bite is... Uh, um, there's lots and lots of stuff out there that's just nowhere else in the world. It's pristine. Yeah, and it's the one of the last places yeah. that's left alone, and now they want to go and do this to it. I, I just don't get it. Mm. And uh, it's about money changing hands. <laughs> not even a lot of money. Not even, you know. Yeah. They, they, these oil companies get a 150% tax break so we're actually paying them to drill and risk our coastline so how does that work i don't i don't get it i just don't get it you know I, it's, mm. it's very frustrating to sit it, back and, and and to watch these things happen mm. yeah it is and the, um, we protest as much as you can you know we did the hands across the sand thing but at the end of the day your populist vote doesn't matter to politicians they just go oh no we're doing it anyway you know we've They've proven how bad seismic blasting is. Um, it was a big uh, thing in the Philippines. They had an oceanic, um, I forget the name of it now, like a conference. And the people we know went there and said, here is the paperwork, here's the study. This is what this seismic blasting does. And everyone's adopted it, but still not seen as let them do it. Like, it's... It's the worst thing ever, apart from the drilling. Yeah, I, I just want to uh, apologise for the for the helicopter noises. It's just yeah. been pointed out that there are three murderers on the loose round here, and that's what they're looking for. Or it might be a bike race or something. Oh, okay. <laughs> going on. I don't know. It's one of the two. Yeah. I can't remember which one it was. I think it's uh, tour down under, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what they're doing. I thought they were filming us. I thought like we'd got that famous that they're in helicopters filming us doing this and. But apparently not. No. Tour down under. Tour down under. Mm. Mm. At your, uh, your your wildlife park, when like we've just had a heat wave go through here, mm. how do you guys cope with that with all the animals? Ah, well, people still come to see a show on stinky yeah. hot days. Yeah. When it's extreme, we're going to close. But the other day it was forty degrees in the arena, but there was a, a slight breeze, and. Uh, the birds are still, they're going to sit and pant under their sprinkler anyway, and we only get them out for maybe five minutes. Mm. So uh, we give everyone a, a wet towel to put around their neck and try and cool them down. Uh, and sometimes we'll, we'll shorten the time, that definitely shorten the time that the birds are out, of course. Um, but uh, sometimes we'll bring out some reptiles instead. But that just just to fill in the hour yeah uh, but uh, generally the um, uh, the birds are they're happy because all the because we have no we have no foxes or my aviaries are all shake cloth so when you put the little mini wobblers on above it wets the shake cloth like oh, a, so you have to spring air conditioning yeah it's beautiful yeah. when the breeze yeah. is blowing through you get in the aviaries it's cooler than yeah. anywhere else and yeah. the, the shake cloth works as I say just like an air conditioner so the birds are they're still doing it hard, but they wouldn't wouldn't be any worse than sitting in a shady tree. So. Mm. Yeah, cool. It's not too much of an issue with it. No. Sounds like I had more of an issue than your birds did. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, the staff do. Some got of, hot some working of the staff, in that weather. <laughs> mm. Yeah, some of the staff uh, they feel it. Yeah. They like it better when it's cooler, mm. of course. Well, even when it's cold, it's and the birds are better. They they're keen for their tucker because if they're not keen for their tucker, they're not going to perform. And in a hot day, you don't feel like eating, but they got they know their routines. Mm. And so, but when it comes to training, um, the, the principles of training are, are pretty simple. Your, your trainee must understand what it is you want them to do, and number two, there must be a big enough incentive for them to want to do it. So um, that's what I explain to people when I'm doing shows. Uh, so with a bird, you you uh, you watch his weight. You, it's recorded. You weigh the bird every day. 
and you record the weight and you can tell from his weight how well he's going to respond. He's too heavy, he's 10 grams up, he might not respond to you straight away or might go and do something else he wants to do. And of course if he's, if he's 10 grams lower, we're talking about a small bird, not a barn or a smaller kestrel. Um, uh, it's a, a small bird, 10 grams makes a big difference, huge difference. Um, so if they're 10 grams underweight, then they're all over you. They're too hungry, and yeah. that makes them hangry. Hangry, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so we, we try and keep their weight, and that varies from season to season. You've got to bring their weight up when it's cooler and down a bit when it's warmer. And uh, you keep them on a nice weight. You can usually tell when you walk up to the aviary what, if the bird's going to on your side for the for the show. If he's not interested, sometimes just go, uh, we'll go to another bird. <laughs> Do you want a new eclectus parrot? <laughs> you, can, you can take Rocky. Is that all right, Adrian? Yeah. I know it's yours, but... <laughs> yeah. we got uh, we got a trained all the black cockies up now, so we've got a, oh, a nice. really nice show. We give uh, all the give the patrons, those that want to come out and hold a bird, we give them a, uh, it's like a wetsuit sleeve to put on and uh, they put that on and hold their arm up and the black cockies fly to them. So we've got uh, two red tails, a yellow tail and a little white tail that are bred. And the four of them come out and fly around the arena and everyone puts their arm up and the birds fly to them. And they, I know, love black cockies. They're, they're beautiful. They're one of my favourite, yeah. And they're so smart. They're yeah. so smart. We've got one uh, big yellow tail we call Yakka and uh, one of the staff got him to plant a gum nut, so we had a little pot plant pot mm. there, and he'd dig a hole and put the seed in, just to say to people, you know, if a bird can plant a tree, we can too, sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, we ran that for a while, but um, he, he's, uh, he's just a show-off. So when he comes out, he flies around right in front of you, and he fans his tail out and puts his crest up, and, and he oh, just wow. looks magnificent. He really is a beautiful bird, and so smart, those cockies. Are so smart. It's always, it's always um, it's got me how we are, all seem to be fairly comfortable with keeping a, a galah or a parrot or a budgie in a little tiny cage. But if you put a bird of prey in a cage that size, everyone will go, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> but when you look at the grey matter of a, a cockatoo and a peregrine falcon, say, a cockatoo is way smarter. You know, peregrines do what they've got to do and they work out tactics for catch and prey. They're clever, but they're not social, interactive birds like cockatoos are, and yet we can take a cockatoo and keep it on its own in a cage all its life because we want to look at it at the end of the day when we get home from work. And I used to think that was okay, but now I don't. And yet there are no laws. Like, we've got guidelines to say how big a cage has to be if you want to keep a raptor. But there's nothing for how big a cage has to be to keep a galah. Or a budgie. Where, or, where does that, mm, where does, that yeah, doesn't make any sense point. at all. Ab- absolutely you know? agree. Yeah. 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 My wife would be here now clapping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good talk, good talk. She doesn't like the reason I can't own an African grey parrot. <laughs> or a red-tailed cockatoo would be good. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you're going to own a couple and have a decent size, decent size Avery, yeah. you know, for yeah. a start. But mm. even the biggest Avery is still not the same as a wild bird. You're better off planting, like my mate did, uh, he just planted all these she-oaks on his property. He's right on the south coast of KI. Mm. Planted uh, hundreds of uh, she-oaks. And now uh, all the glossy black cockatoos, which I think there's about 300 now, they've brought them up from 150 to 300 mm. birds. Uh, they come and all around his house now in his uh, she-oaks because that's all they eat the, the, yeah, the, yeah. the glossies they eat, eat she-oak nuts and uh, uh, so he's brought the birds to him and he can see glossies quite often now um, just going down when he goes for a walk in the morning there are the glossies why do you need an aviary this is what we say to people like, yeah, you know build a pond you know you know, put in your, your flowering trees and Mm. and give your animals habitat and we'll basically build it and they will come yep. that's mm. what it comes mm. down to isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's what my, my wife's concentrating on doing a butterfly garden at the moment because you, know, you do that and, and it builds from that and you get all other stuff that, that comes well in. that's fantastic awesome. um, are you doing any like uh, flyers for how to build a butterfly garden and what the tr- plants are because when I was a kid I grew up uh, up until I was about 12 in Darlington and I remember standing there with my butterfly net. I think we must have been doing a project for school where we were pinning insects. And I remember standing there with a butterfly net and every couple of minutes a butterfly would come over the fence and I'd run and 
catch it and I yeah. had a whole collection of all different sorts of butterflies. I guarantee you could go back to that same place now and stand there all day and, and you wouldn't see, see a butterfly come yeah. over the fence. Yeah. They're gone. It, I think Roundup's got a lot to answer for. But when I was a kid, there were vacant blocks and there were weeds and stuff like that for for the caterpillars to eat. Well, you don't see vacant blocks and you certainly don't see weeds much anymore because everyone hits them with Roundup. Mm. It's too easy to get rid of weeds. So now your butterflies are as mm. rare as. You know, they're, they're just not common anymore. There are the, the, the girls at... Um, well, the, the, the guys at the Butterfly Association of South Australia. They're, mm. they're, they're really good. They've got some good informative... Are they? Stuff on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah I sure. think I'd, I'd like to get on to them because uh, those sort of flyers that people can take home and go, oh, yeah, look, let's go down to Bunnings and see what we can mm. buy. Yeah. Um, it, it all helps. Yeah, well, that that's almost sort of getting down to the grassroots, isn't it? If you've got the plants there to, to bring the insects in, then, then that's yeah. what we're talking about, is yeah. getting, get those plants in. You're attracting the butterfly, you're attracting the birds and... Yeah. You know, it's it plant a diversity of plants. Really, yeah, yeah it yeah. works really well. Well, look, I've fenced a, a whole paddock off at home, and I'm revegging it. Uh, I plant about six hundred a year. That's all I can afford, and, and uh, um, that that's doing really well. You've done it a few years now, and uh, I've just got a, a fence, twelve hundred high, with a floppy top on the outside, so nothing nothing climbs up, but gets up to the floppy top, which is curved over. Because you've got cats on the island, but you don't have foxes. Yeah, yep. yeah. So I don't have any trouble with the foxes, of course, but uh, this keeps the cats out as well. Even my big dog, and she's a she's a big ridgeback cross, and she can't jump this fence, and it's only twelve hundred high because it's got this big floppy top on it that that leans outwards. Uh, she just keeps banging into that when she tries to jump in. No animals, no koalas, no possums, nothing has got into that paddock since I fenced it. And the, all the grass has grown nice and long. And, you know, any time you can go out there and there's black shouldered kites hovering over it or kestrels hovering over it and, and all the little birds have moved in and they're all through their acacias and stuff all through there because it's, it's a sanctuary on the inside. You know, there's mice in there amongst all the grass for the... Yeah. So you've really easily like created your own ecosystem yeah. right there. So, so all I've got to do now is put a big pond in there and away she'll go. Or, you know, every, everything can live in there. Cause or you could have been up all night raising kangaroos and possums and that whole area could have just been fenced off. Just feed them for a week. Yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> just, sorry to go on it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. <laughs> well, Someone's let it go. got a problem today, isn't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can show other people that and people go, hey, I could do that at mine. Um, we had a, had we, the, before we moved here, we just had a, uh, that was less than a quarter acre block in Mount Barker and the front yard was lawn. Um, I, didn't, I don't mind a bit of lawn, but we got rid of it. We put back native plants. I end up having 80 species of local native plants there. Yeah, I saw your place, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you did too. Um, and the highlight of that place was a lot of those species started coming up of their own volition. Mm. So there was nowhere for weeds to, to be. Uh, and they started coming up at the neighbour's place. Neighbours would come around and go, what's that? Oh, that's a kangaroo apple. Let's just come up at my place. You're welcome. It's a, rare, it's a rare plant. <laughs> I think the biggest compliment I had was uh, the bloke directly opposite said, I'm going to do that now too, and he is. He's doing the same thing. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's cool to see. Um, yeah, yeah. Kangaroo Island, great place to visit. Raptor Domain, that's really the jewel on the crown there, isn't it? I think so. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk right up until we get one of the others on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> um, do, you have a, do you have a favourite bird that you like working with, mate? Is that a... You've been working with birds like your whole life, haven't you? It's budgies, and you've always been interested in raptors. But that, yeah, I think my favourite bird is a hobby falcon. Is that right? Yeah, because they're a falcon, their sort of their lineage goes back to parrots, and they're they're really they're really smart. Well, they're all they're all individuals. I actually (laughs) little story. uh, I I got uh, I got two baby hobbies in at the same time, not related. And one was, she was pretty basic because apparently a truckie picked her up and put her on his shoulder and drove to the vets and she finished up at my place, long story short. Um, and I started training these two birds exactly the same at the same time, one after another. Two weeks, I had one flying, free flying, stooping to the lure, doing everything perfect. And the other one still didn't get it. But six weeks later, she finally, I got her to, to do... She's just a really, really slow learner. That's why she was found on the side of the road. If someone hadn't found her, she would have just starved to death because I'm sure the parents would have gone, well, 
you know, if you're not if you're not weathered enough to stay with us and for you to show you how to catch stuff, then bad luck for you. So, just like people, animals, <laughs> you have some basic. Well, I'm are trying to say some a, are really a lesson basic out to parents. And, yeah, <laughs> some are really basic and some are some are really smart. So you you have your professors and then you have your you know your your non-professors, your non-professors, <laughs> yeah, basic ones, um, and some are really nasty. Some are just have nasty temperament, and yeah. others have a really nice temperament. Particularly with eagles, you know, um, and uh, they they are all individuals. So their training requires knowing how to deal with the different personalities, and that's it. When you train birds like that or any animal, you get to know their personality because they are all different. Even your rock wallabies are both different, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, both different natures. They're just the same as people. People don't get that, and that's why I think you get the rehabbers. They just want to keep everything alive because they, they have an attachment. They get an attachment with that animal and they can't bear to see it die. But, you know, it's, it's the old story about, you know, do you die on your feet or live on your knees? Yeah, that's and, right. And, yeah. and a bird in a cage isn't an option. He's got to... He can't kill himself. Yeah. And you go, oh, are you happy today? If he can tell you what he's thinking. Different story, wouldn't it? Yeah. Technology to know what animals are thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, Alex, the African grey cockatoo, African grey parrot, the, the one that uh, lady uh, studied in, in uh, America. Is it the one that he can say a, like 300 words or something? Yeah, 30, or he was 30 years old and, and they used to ask him what he wanted for breakfast. He used to say when he Amazing. wanted to go back to the cage or if he wanted to go and look out the window at the birds in the tree because he was ex- like a, a, um, a studied bird, so he wasn't allowed out, but he used to like to go and look out the window at the birds in the tree. And he used to tell them that's what he wanted to do <laughs> because he, he knew how to talk to this... Uh, oh, I forget her name now. But if you ever want to read a book on the intelligence of, of animals, read, read Alex, the story of Alex the African grey parrot. Amazing stuff. I mean, this bird, <laughs> like I say, they'd ask him what he wanted for breakfast, but one day she was training another one, and she'd say, how many of this? And he was sitting in a cage watching, and under his breath he's saying, six. <laughs> and she's going, that's only five. And he'd say, she'd say, how many of this? And he'd say, three. Because <laughs> he was just trying to muck up the other bird. Like, <laughs> some days he wouldn't say the right answer because wow. he knew it was the right answer. So he would just say something different. So he, he, Cheeky. Very cheeky. And, and, of course, she has to prove it as it wasn't just conditioning. It was actually the bird thinking and for li- itself and, and lying yeah. and lying yeah. yeah and playing tricks and all sorts of stuff he used to do that and and she just couldn't when he died it was a heartbreaking as you can imagine there were, i forget how many followers he had but thousands and thousands of people it's funny how you get attached to certain animals yeah, yeah. i mean that the most annoying animal i have is rocky and he's he's your favorite he is my favorite <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so back to the favorites yeah hobby fowl hobby fowl yeah and butcher birds i don't know why butcher I, love, birds. I love butcher birds yeah. Yeah. yeah for those that don't know they they collect like geckos and skinks and things and they impale them onto spiky branches and things the, don't they the forks of trees and forks they tear trees. them apart with the tip of their beak you've yeah. got to love but, them haven't you <laughs> <laughs> but they are just they're beautiful little birds and they have a, a pied butcher bird in particular that's the most melodious call to hear them in the morning calling is you know it's fantastic i love them yeah so they're my they're probably my two favorites yeah okay all the hipsters are into the vegan bird little little known cousin of the butcher bird <laughs> God, sorry made that up um <laughs> when did you first get into birds dave <laughs> you're getting tired oh, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's the first show but big holiday <laughs> um well my, my dad was a pretty keen aviculturist and, and he kept all sorts of birds from when I can first remember at Kernelite Gardens I was like I don't know three or four years old and used to go in and feed the birds with dad um, and then uh, I was up we, as I said we lived in Darlington and I was up Sturt Creek one day and uh, climbed this tree we had a, an eagle's nest in a tree and we used to climb this sit in this eagle's nest and smoke cigarettes up in this <laughs> up in the three boys up in an eagle nest smoking cigarettes on the side of the hill um but just near there there was a, a brown falcon had nested and i climbed to the nest and there were three little chicks in the nest and i don't know why i dearly I, to this day i don't know why i just thought oh, i'm having one of these and this is back in the 60s you know and um 
had no permits or anything back then. And I took home this little brown falcon and uh, and raised it and trained it. And of course, the training method was pretty rudimentary. Your dad said, if you whistle when you feed it, it'll come to you when you whistle. And I couldn't find a book on falconry or training or anything, so I'd read all the um, encyclopedias in the library at school and anywhere I could find anything that had... And basically, that's all I had until I finally, I think, someone got me a, a falconry book for birthday. But I already had... That was 11 years old when I trained that brown falcon. I used to have it on a cocky chain, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, pretty much done that all my life since then so yeah and done a lot of rehab got stuff back to the wild and then uh, flew some stuff uh, you know for a part, as part of rehab to get birds back that come in injured and such uh, and then I got my job at the wildlife park uh, running the bird section and training birds of prey so haven't never looked back but I used to be a plumber just a plumber for nearly 20 years I remember you were talking about that back in the days before uh, cordless drills. Yeah. <laughs> Hard work. Yeah. Wow, that's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole right nother there. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, is there anything that you'd like to add? No. No. I appreciate your honesty. Be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've done about three soap boxes this morning at least. But, uh, yeah, no, look, uh, if you uh, if you want a wildlife experience, uh, come over to KI. Uh, even our local wildlife park, they're, they're doing a pretty good job there. With their, you know, they've upgraded a lot in their enclosures and, and they're doing a lot of uh, hands-on talks and stuff like that as well. So, um, and they, we, we complement each other. Not that we're close at all, but uh, the more good things there is to see on KI, the more people come over. And there's some wonderful stuff on KI, apart from the natural... Uh, attractions, uh, you know, beer, wine, and food, and all that, and the, and the scenery, of course, and the fishing. But uh, yeah, if you come over, come and see us, uh, do a show. I'll guarantee you won't be disappointed. Um, and um, say good day to my lovely wife. She's the the uh, well, she does all the the managing. I do the training and the maintenance these days. Um, she yeah, said she does she everything. Was, she does it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, come and see us and uh, see what we do. Yeah, it's a stunning I, I place. I guarantee you'll love it. Mm, absolutely. I've seen your show many times that I never get sick of seeing it. It's fantastic. Now, try and make it different. I've got some butte birds now. You know, I got a little eagle the other day. I'm not talking about rare. I've got a, a leatherwing kite. Leatherwing kites. There's like, they reckon maybe a thousand left in the wild. That's all. And one turned up at Panola in the backyard, skinny, dehydrated, you know, really emaciated, because they just got to fly south because of the, the drought. Um, the the prey's just not there, and they're a they're quite a communal raptor, live together in a group, and uh, quite nocturnal as well, which is the only nocturnal raptor in the world apart from owls, of course. Um, and uh, here's one I've only ever seen them once in my life. Uh, up near Darwin and there's one in a backyard in Panola but I've got it so I'm going to try and find where there's a flock someone in Australia must know where there's a flock of letterwing kites and try and fly it back up there and let it go because you know something as rare as that you know when we're talking about rehab that's a bird that you want to get back because they are as rare as um, uh, there's nothing I could do with that bird even if I could train it you can't train adult owls and they're just so much like an owl that you can't train them um, but that's not the reason they, they, even if I could train it I wouldn't keep it because something as rare as that it's got to go back you know it's got to reproduce um, but uh, yeah they, we've we've just ruined inland Australia with the with the, the drought in particular but uh, uh, in droughts in in the past there were refuges along creek lines and water holes and that where animals would retreat to during a drought and then when the rains come the boom time they'd all go back out well th those areas are all gone now because of the sheep and cattle they've ruined all those retreats and so a bird like that just has to fly south and they're just not equipped to handle the cold about a hundred in a flock died at Werribee in the 70s because they just came down the wet and cold killed them all um, so uh, um, yeah central Australia and well inland Australia 
basically it's, it's doing it really hard at the moment and all the animals as well and I, I don't know Port Augusta 48.4 degrees the other day is never that hot we lived in Port Augusta and never ever got that hot you know so times are changing they yeah I wouldn't be a farmer now for quids you just don't know what you're getting you know it's uh, and yet we keep having more and more people and we have more and more pressure on the land yeah and the oil companies buying up all the good inventions for making cheap energy you know so we've got to come up with different ways of powering you know making energy that, that's a big one I reckon um, there's better ways of doing it it's um, just got to get people uh, to start doing it really you know and saying well we're not happy with your decisions Australian government's got a lot to answer for it's just not making decisions in the best interest of people of Australian some, people I think so too I mean, we mm. need some better options don't we I mean yeah. jumping up and down it's not working it doesn't have any yeah. options do we writing letters isn't working um, yeah what are we like I said the populist vote doesn't get a look in you know if everyone says oh we want to do this politicians say well no we're not they do what they like they do what they like yeah I don't know Mm. Yeah, and on that note, <laughs> <laughs> wow! Uh, yeah. <laughs> We've done the cover the whole thing today. Yeah. <laughs> the world is going to be a better place now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope it gets people thinking. You know, no, that's exactly right. right. These are just 100%. a lot of my views. You know, and yeah, a lot of no, people I think, would uh, uh, many people them, share them. Well. Um, Mate, thanks so much for coming on the show, Dave. Oh, absolute yeah. pleasure. Thanks. Hopefully the next one we do, we'll come to you and we'll come and check out one of your bird shows. Yeah, mate. do that. That'll be yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, you can yeah. walk us around and sure. introduce us to some of your, some of your birds. Mm. Dave, thanks Loved again. Yeah, uh, Raptor Domain, check it. Dave, Dave and Lisa do a fantastic job. Um, like, yeah, as, as Dave said, you, you will love it. And, um, and yeah, get on board. Yeah, Guys, absolutely. thank you very much for listening. Thanks, guys. Cool, thanks. Bye-bye.